Our sermon text is 1 Timothy 4, 11 to 16. That's 1 Timothy 4, verses 11 to 16. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Devote yourself to them, so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Let's pray. Father, some children who are mentally handicapped or physically handicapped will never lead the lives their parents dreamed for them. Ever. Until the end comes. They'll be six months old all their lives, or two, in a chair, in a bed. The parents never, never planned it, never dreamed it, and it is their calling now till they're dead. Our vision for youth covers them. The hand we are dealt is seldom the one we ask for in this life. You are wise, and often our portion is painful. And parenting is among the greatest pain and pleasure. So as we launch into this series on a vision for the next generation, Seed it with everything good, everything beautiful, everything powerful, everything that these parents need, whether their children are radiant with health and full of faith or disabled or worse, unbelieving. So God, come, help us. We five who will attempt this vision, help us. Through Christ I pray. Amen. Just a word of encouragement. This is a parenthesis. <laughs> I want to say it in relation to last Sunday's message on evangelism. Two things. Um, I said at one point in the sermon, you remember... You give stuff out on airplanes. You give stuff out in the neighborhood. You just drop a word here and there. Sometimes you feel like you've blown it entirely. That was a lame witness for Jesus. And, and uh, nothing is in vain. Remember that line? Guy comes up to me in Louisville. Takes my hand. Pastor. And he says, just for your encouragement, got a guy in my church. You were reading the Greek Testament a few years ago on an airplane. 
He's sitting beside you. And he looks down and he says, what's that? And you explain the Greek New Testament and the gospel and you give him a copy of Desiring God. And he got saved and he's in my church now. That's encouragement number one. Number two is that uh, the attendance at the Tuesday night evangelistic venture was tripled this last Tuesday. And, and those guys just tell me, carry it on. Come on, grow it up. So come on down. The water's fine, both South Campus and here. And they got some plans at the North Campus, Fred was telling me about, too, on the third Saturday thing, but I better not jump the gun. Let Fred explain that later. Okay, close that parenthesis. This message is the first of five messages that I'm to launch concerning a vision for the next generation, how all of us, parents, wider family members, empty nesters, single folks, the young people themselves can help make a vision, a reality that is coming into being. I will be followed by David Michael, Sam Crabtree, Kempton Turner, and Greg Harris over the next four Sundays while I'm on writing leave. Another parenthesis. The elders give me a month a year to, to make sermons become books. And that's what I'll be doing in May. Hopefully the marriage series that I did a year or so ago. Would you pray with me? All of us pray about that. And here's a way you can really encourage a pastor while he's away. One, do lots of witnessing so the stories abound. And number two, don't let up in your giving. Sometimes when I go away, the giving goes away. That's not good. That doesn't encourage me. <laughs> so uh, do electronic giving if you have to. If you go away for something, just go online and do your giving or send it through a friend. Just encourage me with the news when I get back. Thank you, Abe. Close that parenthesis too. I hope that all the children watching this by video and in this service, the young people, teenagers, will pay especially close attention. This is designed in large measure for you, but not only for you. One of the premises of this vision that's emerging is that living for the glory of Christ does not go on hold until you're 18. There is a six-year-old way to live for the glory of Christ. There's a 10-year-old way to live for the glory of Christ. There's a 16-year-old way to live for the glory of Christ and on. It doesn't go on hold. You don't stand around waiting for, oh, there's a, there's a day when I'm adult and think about my life as counting. You don't wait for that. Soon as you're conscious of Christ and put your faith in Christ, you think that way. That's the premise of the vision that is emerging. There's a way for parents, church leaders, and all of us to create a matrix of relationships and teachings and expectations and blessings that awaken young people to the emptiness and the vanity and the aimlessness of popular youth culture and gives them a vision for Christ-exalting significance in their preteen years and their teen years. 
with no thought anymore of, I just play now and get serious about life later. So let me give you four personal reasons for why I am thrilled to launch this series before I go. Number one, the Lord Jesus in recent years has made it very clear to me that part of his call on my life is Psalm 71, 18, which goes like this. So even to old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me until I declare your might to the generation that is to come. I don't know why he would do this to me. I'm a 62-year-old fuddy-duddy. And whether it's San Luis Obispo or Wales or where was I just city? Louisville. That was the day before yesterday. Whether it's any of those places, this is on my life for a short time. Could go away any minute. I'm aware of this, that nobody might show up next time. But for now, they show up. Young people are showing up. This is on me. This is a brief little window in which this old man is called to address another generation, and I don't know why. I just know, there it is. Steward it well, Piper. Don't blow this away. Now, I think I would be lacking in integrity if I just went out and did it on the road and didn't give a rip whether anything happened here. That would be really weird and strange. So that's, that's personal reason number one why I want to launch this series myself and not just hand it off to the other guys. Number two, Noel and I raised four sons in this church. They're grown, they're married, and they have their children, and now they're discovering what it's like. I will never cease, and I hope this is true, I mean never, cease to thank God for Bethlehem Baptist Church as a place to raise my children. I gave thanks to God all through their little years, their teen years, and as they moved on out, I I thanked God because my boys on vacation wanted to come home to go to church. What an amazing thing. Now, amazingly, by another grace, we're raising a daughter. We, unlike so many, get a chance to do it all over again. The parents of 12-year-olds in this church are the age of my children, or at least I am old enough to be the father of the parents of the people who have children my daughter's age. If that makes any sense to you at all. This is a most remarkable thing. I can hang out with other parents and they're young enough to be my children. 
And the sweet thing about it is it just keeps me right in the thick of the youth ministry. And I get a chance to do it, I hope, better with Talitha than with my experimental boys. (laughs) That's number two. Number three, I tremble at the thought that our church might have it ever said of us this. This is Judges chapter 2, verse 10. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or work that he had done in Israel. How can that happen? A real simple explanation for how that can happen. The parents didn't tell them. Didn't tell them about the Exodus. Didn't tell them about the Jordan River crossing. Didn't go out to the stone pile. Say, see that stone pile? Let me tell you what that means. They didn't do it. They just were carried away with the culture into which they had been given by God. I don't want that to happen. I would like very much for our church to work hard. You know, you, you can read, I'm not going to give you the statistics because they vary all over the place, but they're bad no matter where you look at the number of evangelical kids who, when they're done with their 18 years in the church, are gone. They're gone. They're gone from the church. Huge numbers. What, what's that? What, what is going on there? And so you try every kind of rah-rah program in a book to keep them. It never works. Rah-rah programs keep them for 18 years under their parents' thumb, and then they're gone. So that's number three. I, I would like us to be a church that goes far deeper than that in the prayer and the hope that our kids will not abandon the faith. It's not infallible. There's no program. There's no system. There's no nothing except the grace of God that's going to hold on to our kids. So I'm not laying anything on you. You, you know I can't from where I stand. Number four. God is doing unusual things in our day among young people. And I want to be a part of it. We want to harness all the good impulses of grace that are part of this awakening. And I brought along this little book here to, to uh, show you an example of what I mean. This just came out last week. Alex and Brett Harris. Now, it's their dad. They wrote this book. These are two 19-year-olds. They're 19 now. Um, their dad will be the speaker in four weeks, Greg Harris. And uh, they started when they were 16 a a website called The Revolution, Revolution, and it's designed for teenagers. And the theme is simply do hard things, a teenage rebellion against low expectations. That'd be the summary of my message right there, a rebellion against low expectations for teenagers. Almost all of us in church have too low expectations for our young people. And uh, they're trying to turn that around. And let me read you how the 
first page of the book begins. Most people don't expect you, directing this to their teen peers, most people don't expect you to understand what we're going to tell you in this book. And even if you understand, they don't expect you to care. And even if you care, they don't expect you to do anything about it. And even if you do something about it, they don't expect it to last. Well, we do. And we do. It's those low expectations. It's parents who expect rotten teenagers who probably get them. So I think we have some things to learn from each other here, those who've done this better than others of us. Would you turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 4? Those are my four personal reasons for why I'm happy to be doing what I'm doing right now. 1 Timothy chapter 4. I'm only going to focus on one verse, verse 12. I'll begin with the verse. I'll make about four comments on it briefly. And then I'm going to step back and get the big biblical sweep of, of, of the meaning of youth and where we're, we're going, I hope. Here's the verse. 1 Timothy 4, 12. Let no one despise you or for your youth or despise your youth but set the believers an example in speech and conduct, in love and faith and purity. Observation number one, youth is often looked down on because of attitudes and behaviors that are annoying or immature. Here are a few. One, disrespect. Two, rebellion. Three, self-absorption. Four, clickishness. Five, conformity to peer pressure. Six, indifference to serious issues. Seven, fixation on fun, fun, fun as the only thing that satisfies. Now, if, if those things are pronounced, youth can be despised. And Paul admits that there is a despising of youth. And his way of dealing with it is not to talk to the despisers, but to Timothy. Number two, second observation. Paul is telling Timothy not to be indifferent to the attitude of adults toward him. Don't let them despise you. In your youth. He's putting, he's putting this on Timothy. Strange, huh? Don't let them do that. Seems to imply there's something Timothy could do about it. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in purity. In other words, Timothy, do what you can do. Do what you can do to keep this from happening. Care about what they think. Third observation. The way he tells Timothy to overcome the being despised that's coming at him is not to adjust to their attitudes. He does not say this. 
Let no one despise you for your youth, but find out what they want and act that way. That's not what he says. This is not man-pleasing going on. This is not parent-pleasing. This is not church leadership-pleasing going on here. What, what does he say? He's saying that peaceful relationships between you and adults isn't absolute. I'm not telling you, find out their desires and, and do that. I'm not saying that. He doesn't absolutize the adult expectations. Well, what does he say? This is observation number four and the last one. He says, instead of looking to the adults and what they want from you, you look to the Word of God and act and speak in the features like love, like faith, like purity, you weave all of that into your words and you weave all of that into your actions and that is the way I want you to strive against being despised. If he were saying more, and I'm going to say more, he would say doing that will get you despised by some adults. You stand up at school for abstinence, for example, you can have a little, little class survey here, Everybody thinks that uh, abstinence till your marriage and purity and abstaining from sex is a wise thing to pursue. You want to raise your hand right now and two hands go up out of 30? The teacher has her, his way of communicating. I don't admire that. I'm not saying, and Paul's not saying, all despising coming from adults is a bad thing. It isn't a bad thing to be despised by fools. It's a good thing. And I'll give you texts that use the very word I just used later. So, this text is a summons to Timothy. Timothy... If you think there's nothing you can do about this issue of the attitude towards youth, you're wrong. Have high expectations of yourself and many despisings will fall away. Others will come, but the ones that matter will go. Lock yourself into the Word of God, Timothy, and let your action, your word, your, your word and your deed become pure and faithful and loving with a view towards setting an example for others. We'll come back to that shortly. So the main point in the text seems to be, don't have low expectations, Timothy, of the impact you might have in the life of adults. You, you think it's all about them influencing you. I'm telling you, it's about you influencing them, son. Now, how many of our young people think this way? How many of their parents think this way? I, 10-year-old, 12-year-old, 16-year-old, 19-year-old, I'm called to set an example for adults. <laughs> Anybody think that way? Why not? No reason, just tradition. 
We know that adults are supposed to set an example for children. That's a given. We don't need to talk about that. Adults are called to set a good example for children. The question is, any calling on a child's life? Soon as he knows Christ can read a Bible? You bet there's a call on a child's life, a teenager's life, a 20-something's life. You don't wait until you get 18 to think, well, maybe I could influence somebody for Jesus. No way. Don't adapt to the low cultural expectations for youth. What is the cultural expectation for youth in this society? (laughs) Play video games. Go to rock concerts. Wear cool clothes. Play, play, play. That's a pretty empty vision. So rebel against low expectations. Rebel against... They're coming in June. Go to, the, go to the Minneapolis Convention Center and be a part of that. Now, let me step back and get the big picture. Just kind of... Okay, there's, there's Paul saying something about the do what you can do, Timothy, about being an example for adults and, and getting rid of all the despising you can and getting the kind you need to get. Now, what about the rest of the Bible? Let's just do a big big survey here, kind of thematically work our way through how children move towards this. There are eight of these steps, and we'll just bang through them as quickly as we can. Number one, all children are born sinners. Not just doing sin, but being sinners. Psalm 51.5, David, after committing adultery with Bathsheba, traced it back to the womb of his mother. Not the fault of his mother, the womb of his mother. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin, did my mother conceive me. He accepted responsibility for his adultery, but he knew it had roots in his nature. And all of our sin has roots in our nature. We won't ever magnify Christ as we ought until we admit at age 6 or 60 that we not only do bad things, we're bad. There is a glorious redemption, which is why you're not hurting a child's self-esteem to teach him that. If you try to go the other way and say, oh, you can't say you're bad, you have to say you do bad things, what will you do when the child wants to discover what the meaning of new birth is? Just a behavior modification? It is not behavior modification. It's nature revolution. So the first thing we learn from the Bible is that we all are and our children are, and it started from the beginning of their existence, guilty and sinful. After the flood, judgment on the whole world, a few human beings left. Get a fresh start. God said, I'm never bringing this flood again. And you know what the reason he gave was? For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Nothing's changed. I'd have to give a flood every generation. I'm not. I'm going to do this another way. I'll fix this problem another way. 
Every human's heart corrupt from youth. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child. Proverbs twenty two fifteen. That's the first thing we need to know about all children. They're sinners. They need salvation, desperately need salvation. They don't just do bad things. They're bad. I'm bad. They're bad. I need to make sure they know I know I'm bad and that my bad attitude. We had a beautiful testimony at the father-daughter high tea today from Oscar and Gabby where to, to the effect that an apology from a parent to a teenager is worth a, an atom bomb of goodness and reconciliation. Number two, the first sin and fallenness. Second, children need to therefore be taught the gospel, the whole story. They need to be taught this book. This is the only hope for them. They need to be taught from the time they can understand a word, Jesus, Jesus. After they learn the word no, they should learn the word Jesus. (laughs) Oh God, this is David. Oh God, from my youth, you have taught me and I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. From my youth, you have taught me. But God uses parents and churches to bring teaching to bear upon children's lives. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Discipline and instruction of the Lord. What does that mean? So many parents, I fear, take it to mean Moral demands followed by rewards and punishments. Discipline and instruction of the Lord. Moral demands followed by rewards and punishments. That's demonic. Teach them the Ten Commandments and spank them when they don't do it. That's the sum total of, in the Lord, we're instructing. That's demonic. That's straight out of hell. The gospel saves sinners. The gospel saves six-year-olds. The gospel saves eight-year-olds. The Ten Commandments saves nobody. Spankings don't save anybody. And I believe in spanking. The grace of God in the gospel becomes, oh God, let it happen, the rule and the power by which our children live. So that's teaching. Got to teach them the gospel. Show them the gospel. Unpack the gospel. We'll come back to this. You want me to say more here? I want to say more. We'll come back at the end. Number three. A child is now, by grace, through the word of God, born again. And the evidence of it is faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior and treasure of this child's life. Might be Six, might be eight. It was right in that little cluster there where all my children made professions of faith. You, O Lord, are my hope and my trust from my youth. Psalm 71.5. O Lord, you are my trust from my youth. He, He trusted Jesus when he was little. And he's been trusting him ever since. That implies, does to me, just because of my history, I suppose, 
that you can be born again as a child and put your faith in him and not remember when it happened. My mother told me often, she's in heaven now, that I knelt by her at a bed in a motel in Fort Lauderdale, Florida in 1952 and with as much seriousness as she could detect, put my faith in Jesus. I don't remember a lick of that. Not that I'm, you know, adjusting my brain to forget important things. I don't remember anything from when I was six or five or four. I'm just, my brain, I've already got early Alzheimer's, I presume, and uh, may not last my tenure here, but I don't remember that. Now, what am I supposed to do? Question my salvation because I can't remember the point at which the Lord caused me to be born again through the living and abiding word. This does not cause me to lose any sleep whatsoever. I walk with the Lord. You you ask me, you know, are you alive? I'm not going to reach for my birth certificate to prove that I'm alive. Sure, I'm alive right there. It says I was born in 1946. What could it? I'd say, I'm breathing. I'm alive, which is another way of saying, I know him. I trust him every day. I lean on him. He's my life. He's my treasure. This is my warrant that I'm born again. Not some memory of some little ambiguous event when I was six that I can't even know except through my mother's testimony. So we trust him. We trust him early on and keep on trusting him through life. So you got original sin, you got the teaching of the gospel, and you've got now, by grace, doesn't happen to every kid, born again and, and faith. Here's number four. Um, original sin and all of our sinful choices that flow from it because of the new birth and faith is forgiven. Children must, with your help, experience the sweetness of the forgiveness of all their sins. Most children are legalists to the core. They only think in terms of what they've done wrong and if they can do enough right to fix it. And we just got to break that thing. And you break it with the cross and you just keep hammering away and he died for you, he died for you. And the only hope you have with him is trust him, trust him, trust him. You can't do enough good things to get him to like you. He likes you because of Jesus. Hide in Jesus. The human heart doesn't want that. Little children don't get that. They are legalists to the max. And when parents turn instruction in the Lord into teaching the do's and don'ts and smack when they don't, this is not helping you got to do that, but it's all got to be inside the gospel bubble. It's got to be inside the blood. It's got to be inside the righteousness of, of a Christ who saves another way. And little children don't get this easily because adults don't get it easily. So the fourth thing is forgiveness, sweet experience of forgiveness to deal with your heart. The child's heart, do you feel forgiven from, from, from daddy's criticism? Do you feel forgiven for the, the horrible thing you said to mom yesterday? Do you feel forgiven? And, and if they don't, then deal with it. Go deep with this until they know the blood cleanses from all unrighteousness.
Number five. Let me, let me give you a text. I'm, I'm running over these. I forgot to give you a text for that one. Psalm 25, 7. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Now, that's Old Testament. If, it, if that were written in the New Testament, it would be for the sake of your goodness in Christ. And we know that's what it means now. That's a precious sentence. It always has been to me. Remember not the sins of my youth. Isn't that sweet? That God can actually put them so away that it is as though he's got Alzheimer's. As though. As good as it. Who would not want that? Anybody lived a childhood you'd want remembered down to the detail? Anybody got teenage years? You loved all this. That was worth remembering. Write that in the book. Keep that on television. Not many. Not me. Say this to your children often. This is Acts 10.43. Everyone who believes in Jesus receives forgiveness of sins through his name. That's Acts 10.43. That's pretty clear. Everyone who believes in Jesus receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Say that over and over again to your kids who believe or who need to believe. Number five. Now that the child is born again and believing and forgiven, God's going to treat them like his children. Namely, they're going to have trouble. They're going to suffer. The Lord disciplines the one whom he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. If you are left, whether it's 8 or 80, if you are left without discipline from the Lord in which all have participated, you are illegitimate children and not sons. That's Hebrews 12, 6 to 8. Here's what the psalmist said. I'd never seen this before. At least I'd never landed on it. Psalm eighty-eight, fifteen. Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. <laughs> Afflicted from my youth up. I think I could say that. Not serious, I mean, but my teenage... I, I swore I'd never, I'd never make light of the horrors of my teenage years. I swore I would never look back on the discouragements and depressions and the acne and the nervousness and the friendlessness. I would never say, oh, those are just the teenage years. And to this day, I don't look back with ease upon the difficulty of being a teenager at Wade Hampton High School. Afflicted from my youth, said the psalmist. So that's the way it will be. We teach Theology 101 to a six-year-old. Through many tribulations, you must enter the kingdom. It's going to be hard at school. It's going to be hard in the neighborhood. It's going to be hard everywhere. You're going to get sick. I don't know if you're going to live your life beyond age 19. We're not going to play games here. We're going to say things that aren't true to our children. We're going to get them ready for the battle that's coming. Otherwise, they're going to be blown away by the sufferings that is waiting them. Eleven-year-olds die. Sixteen-year-olds have their necks broken forever until the resurrection. And the whole plan is changed. 
I just got a note from Johnny Erickson Tata this past week. She was willing to... You know the sermons I preached on uh, uh, Spectacular Sins about a year ago in which I argued that in all the horrible sins of the world, God says, you meant it for evil, I meant it for good. Now, Johnny Erickson is my chief testimony, if she would give it to me, to write a blurb for the back of that book. I want Johnny Erickson more than I want anybody. And she said it to me. Beautiful. What a theology. She didn't bargain for that. She didn't bargain for 40 years with somebody helping her to the bathroom every single day. And what did she do with it? She took it as from a father's hand. And only she can say it with full integrity. So you got to get her ready. Get her, I mean, what was her parents telling her at age 14, 15, before the dive into the water? What were they saying? God keeps you from all harm. Or what? What? Number, number six. Um, after sin, teaching, gospel, faith, forgiveness, trials. Those are my five so far. Sin, teaching the gospel, faith, forgiveness, trials. Uh, now comes remarkable maturity in young people if God would be pleased. Maturity. Unusual sense in a, an eight-year-old, a ten-year-old, an, an unusual sense of, I know Jesus. And, and I've been taught that troubles are coming. And I've been taught that being a Christian is not easy. And I've been taught that it's infinitely worth it. And I've been taught that whatever I have to let go of in order to have it, it's not a sacrifice. And I want to. I want my life to count for those kids at school that don't know Jesus and my neighborhood. I want my life to count. Can, can any eight-year-old in this room talk like that? I hope so. Here's a, here's a verse. Consider this. Psalm 144.12. David prays for his children. May our sons in their youth be like plants full-grown. Don't, please don't hear me saying they have to be many adults, many, many, am I not many adults? I know that there's a difference between a 10-year-old and a 31-year-old. I know that. Emotionally, there's a difference. Priorities, what you do with your life. I'm just saying our expectations are too low. That's what I'm saying. And we need to adjust them because this means something. Our, may our sons in their youth be like plants full grown. What's he praying? I think he's praying that their strength of faith and their fruitfulness be something like mature plants. Already showing itself in, in his sons before they are mature plants. So, you know, you reach what? 17, 18, 19, whatever. Complete, you know, complete adult fullness of mind and body, there it is. Before that, before that, he prays that the, the plant would have its flower and it would have its fruit. How many, how many preteens lead others to Jesus? 
They can. They may be the most suited for it at school of anybody. What a fruitfulness that would be. Why were the Proverbs written? Why was the book of Proverbs written? Listen to this. This is the beginning of Proverbs, verse 1 and verse 4. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, purpose to give prudence to the simple and knowledge and discretion to the youth. Proverbs are mainly written to help our young people, especially boys, but not only, to help our young people get discretion and wisdom. And and we tend to have the mindset that they get that with experience. Wisdom is the portion of the old, and strength is the portion of the young, and what a shame that the wise are weak and the strong are stupid. That's the way we tend to think because we have a correlation between living a long time and becoming wise. Would that it were so. It isn't so. Ecclesiastes 4.13 Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king. There's no correlation between old and wise, necessarily. And there's no correlation between youth and folly, necessarily. Better, this is chapter 4, verse 13 of Ecclesiastes, better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. He had outgrown the means of wisdom and become a fool again. Poor lad. Picture this now. He's poorly clothed. He's poor. He's poor. He's not rich. Like he went to a really Ivy League school and got wise. He's poor. He's, he's dressed in average or ragged clothing, standing in the presence of a king clothed in immaculate robes and surrounded by counselors. And God looks at the ideas in their two heads and says, that king's a fool and that boy is really wise. That's what God says. Ever read Job in that regard? Okay. Job's older, and his three so-called friends are older. And they're back and forth about what's smart. And in chapter 32, along comes this fellow named Elihu. Now, you've got to decide whether you like Elihu or not. Scholars are divided whether Elihu is good or bad. I think he's good. I argued that when I gave my my uh, sermons on Job, but I'll just read you what Elihu said to the old men as a young man. I am young in years. This is Job 32, 6 following. I am young in years and you are aged. Therefore, I was timid and afraid to declare my opinion to you. That's very good. That's a good deferential attitude to have towards older people. Absolutely right. I said, let days speak and many years teach wisdom, but it is the spirit in man, the breath of the almighty that makes him understand. It's not old who are wise, nor the aged who understand what is right So I'm not saying to my daughter, 
well, you're young and you really can't be wise and have discretion and depth of understanding now. You've got to wait later. And all the old people you meet are wise. I'm not ever going to say that to her. I'm going to say, you bring your little mind into conformity with the infinite wisdom of God in Scripture early on, and you will outshine every teacher you ever get who isn't oriented on the Word of God. Number seven. This brings us now to two practical conclusions, seven and eight. First, a conclusion for young people, and then a conclusion for parents, and we'll be back at the gospel. Young people, don't let the culture set low expectations for you and what you can accomplish for Christ. Don't let the culture around you, the people around you, define the level to which you might advance in influencing others for Christ. So here's the text, and I remember... Uh, remember Tom, Corey Dahl preached on this, I think just before he left us 25 years ago. <laughs> He's been a pastor over in uh, yeah, Wisconsin. Here's the text that he used and that every young person should take so seriously. This is Jeremiah 1.6. God and Jeremiah having an argument here about his youth. And he says this, Then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. And the Lord said to me, do not say, I am only a youth. For to all to whom I send you, you shall go. Whatever I command you, you shall speak. So, young people, beware of saying, I am only a youth. I am only a youth. Let your youth produce humility, by all means. But don't let it produce Don't let it produce faithlessness in your king who says, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I'll be with you in things that you can't rise to. I will rise to. Don't say, I am only a youth when God is urging you on to some venture for him. That's number seven to youth. Now, here's the final thing, and it's addressed to the rest of us adults and those who have influence on children. Go at it this way. Oh, may God forbid that children growing up in our homes or in our church would say to Jesus after they asked how to inherit eternal life and he lists the Ten Commandments and our children say, these I have kept from my youth. May my children not respond to Jesus like that. Why? What's wrong with that? Because the next thing out of Jesus' mouth was, you lack one thing. He loved him. You lack one thing. And then he said three things. And I think the three things are one thing because the last thing is just subsuming the first two. He said, sell your possessions. Give them to the poor. Follow me. I'm the one thing you lack. The possessions are in your hand like this. I want to be in there. In order for me to be there as your treasure, you've got to let them go. They're going to fall on the poor. So the first two things are just 
getting out of the way for the one thing he lacks, namely Jesus. And this man who had kept the commandments from his youth turned away. Why? I'll tell you why. He was dead. Obediently dead. Classic first kid. Compliant to the max. Knowing how to please mom and dad. Dead. And mom and dad think they're succeeding. It looks so good. It looks so good for 12 and 14 and 16 and 18 years. And then long about in the early 20s, it all falls apart. There's no life. Why? Because the gospel didn't ever break in. It was just the list. It was just, these I have kept from my youth. What more do you want, Dad? I did the stuff. I kept the rules. I'm your ideal kid. I just don't love Jesus and sure wouldn't give up anything for him. So that brings us in closing, parents, again to the gospel. And I think this is where we need to end. I I hope the whole series is just gospel-saturated. We're all so desperately needy. We're just kids anyway, right? We're just little kids. We're scared that we might not... We're going to get spanked forever in hell. And um, we never outgrow our need for mercy. Oh, how sweet when a child terrified at having lied to his dad and being exposed is met with gospel firmness and mercy mingled as only the Holy Spirit can teach a parent to do. Parenting is impossible. It's a miracle when anybody survives parents. But the Holy Spirit is given and he's mainly given to glorify Jesus on the cross. And therefore, I'm just pleading with us as a church to be a a gospel youth ministry, a a gospel parenting church in which Christ is, is exalted and children, youth, coming through these homes and this church, whether they have parents of their own or not, are coming through and they're feeling that their sins are forgiven by the blood of Jesus. And there's hope that my life might count and I haven't ruined it entirely about all this masturbation or all these exploits that they don't know anything about or all this pornography or all these lies I've told. It's not hopeless. It's not hopeless. There's a way forward. I I could have a new life. I want our children to know that message more than I want them to know anything. And then, if God would be pleased to give them new life, have all those sins forgiven, then would come courage to do hard things. Courage to rebel against low expectations, which would be a wonderful fruit of a gospel youth vision. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I am thankful for our family discipleship department and all the 
love. I'm, I'm thankful that after these services, everybody's going to get a little piece of paper as they leave with a, a prayer opportunity to pray more people into the ministry to children in the fall. I pray that you'd bless that. I'm thankful for our, our guys like Kempton and John, Tom on these campuses who pour themselves out. I'm thankful for Bud and Gil. I'm thankful for Joyce here and David Michael and Sally. And my goodness, I'm going to start leaving people out, Lord. So you know, you know them all. I, I pray that you'd give them one mind, a biblical mind, a gospel mind, so that our littlest ones to our oldest youth would come to love the gospel, the Christ of the gospel, and rejoice. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.